Our scripture this evening comes from the book of Acts, the 21st chapter, chapter 21 of, <clears throat> of Acts. I will begin reading at verse 8 of chapter 21 of Acts and uh, read through verse 36, 8 through 36. Hear now God's word to us. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. When Paul then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourselves along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will be will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what was been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who was teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him with him, him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at, the gate, at, at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all of Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. 
And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you will guide us as we look into your word. We pray, O Lord, that we will be able to discern what it is that you have for us. And we pray, O God, that we will see its profitability in our life. We make this prayer to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Through the years, I've had the good fortune to do a good bit of traveling. And in those travels, I've had the opportunity to meet lots of different people. Uh, Lots of them were students and lots of them were professors because of uh, my job. But some of the times, the people I remember, I remember them because funny things happened. I can still recall one student who was to take me out to dinner one night. And uh, the student's English was pretty good, but as with many men, he was a little weak on culinary terms. And so he said to me, today we're going to the health food store for dinner. I was a little nervous about that, (laughs) quite frankly. Uh, Lo and behold, what we did, we went to a a restaurant, it was a real restaurant, and it just so happened that they specialized in a kind of chicken that was stuffed with all kinds of quite tasty herbs. But the purpose of these herbs was that they were supposed to be good for your health. And so this student thought he was taking me to the health food store because we were going to get some health food in the middle of a chicken. Um, so I, I met people like that. I met others who, who uh, impressed me in a much more serious kind of way. Uh, one professor colleague of mine would spend every uh, summer vacation on the border of China and North Korea. And sometimes he would go into North Korea and he told stories about North Koreans, uh, uh, Christians in particular, and the kind of suffering that these North Korean Christians underwent, uh, things that were horrible, starvation, young children who were malnourished and things like that. So you could see, if you travel enough, you get a little bit of humor and you get a little bit of seriousness. And some of you have traveled and you could talk about different kinds of people that you have met at some time or another in those travels. And the Apostle Paul, in his travels, encountered different uh, people. Um, As he was going to Jerusalem in particular, he's taking an offering there uh, because he's been collecting it, as you know, from various churches that he has uh, been working with. And uh, Luke points out some of these encounters, and Luke tells us of Christians who who welcomed Paul, prayed with him, and uh, tried to uh, protect him from what they saw as difficult circumstances. Uh, Luke also tells us in this text that Paul met some people who weren't friendly. As a matter of fact, they tried to murder him. And so we see Paul also having a pretty vast uh, difference in the kind of people he met. So let's look at this text tonight, trying to look at it through the eyes of the, uh, of, of the people that Paul met. Uh, first of all, let's uh, look at Agabus and his prophecy about Paul, and then we'll look at the leaders and their advice to Paul in Jerusalem. And finally, we'll address uh, those Jews who attempted to murder Paul. Uh, 
Now, first of all, let's look at Agabus. Uh, for those of you who have good memories, uh, uh, Andrew introduced us to Agabus back in Acts chapter 11, uh, where uh, Agabus went to Antioch and predicted that there was going to be a famine and uh, was effective in his uh, explanation to the people at Antioch because the church at Antioch took up a collection uh, to send to the saints in Jerusalem. Um, Agabus, in, in talking to the people there uh, in his message, tells them that he came with this message by the Spirit. We'll notice that he uses similar language. We meet him today when he comes to Caesarea to meet with uh, Paul, and Agabus comes with, uh, with a prophecy. His prophecy is words, but it's also an acted-out a kind of prophecy, and uh, anybody who was here this morning shouldn't be surprised by acted out prophecies. Uh, Felipe uh, told us about how a prophecy is acted out uh, with his story about uh, uh, Ezekiel and the way in which he gave a prophecy, but he, he uh, portrayed it also, and it was in live. And that's what Agabus does. Agabus comes and he greets uh, uh, the Apostle Paul in this strange way. He takes his belt, the text says, I think it's really a kind of cloth sash that may have been wound around Paul a couple of times to keep his robes and things tight together around him, not one of our, you know, depending on how big around you are, 36, 38, you know, whatever, a uh, little skinny thing. I don't think that's what it was. It seems to me it was a big piece of cloth probably. But anyhow, he rides it around his hands and around his feet, and he tells Paul that this is what's going to happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem. And when the people hear this, uh, the people that are there hear this, but not only the people who are there, but also uh, Luke and, and those who have been traveling with him. You'll note that uh, Luke points out, he says that uh, we uh, uh, did this, uh, heard this. And uh, now these people urge uh, Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now, this is not the first time this has happened. Uh, you may recall that back uh, uh, when Paul was in Tyre, that there were people also there uh, who, who got a message from the Spirit, and their response to that message from the Spirit was to try to dissuade the Apostle Paul uh, from going to Jerusalem. But Paul uh, seems to be steadfast in going there, and my take is that the reason why the Apostle Paul is so steadfast in going there is because You'll remember when he was speaking to the Ephesian elders, he says, the Holy Spirit has told me that in every city that I go to, I face imprisonment and suffering. And so the Apostle Paul wasn't bothered, it doesn't seem, by, by what was going to happen to him, even though his friends are. And we see in this text the way in which Paul responds to him. He says, come on, don't break my heart, weeping and crying and saying, don't go to Jerusalem. Uh, Paul says, I, I respect what it is that you're saying to me, but uh, don't break my heart with all of these things. He's ready to be imprisoned for the sake of Jesus. And uh, this is something that, that has been apparent, as I said, since his time in Ephesus or before that. And Paul not only says, don't break my heart, don't try to stop me from doing things. I'm a He's affectionate with these people. They've greeted him. They've been close to him. They'll, they'll, they'll go with him even as he walks, uh, rides horses perhaps uh, to, uh, to, from Caesarea to, to Jerusalem. Uh, but Paul tells them, don't break my heart, but then it seems to me the important thing that Paul tells them is, he says, I'm not only uh, willing to, to uh, um, uh, you know, be bound up in this way, but I'm also willing to suffer. I'm willing to die uh, for the Lord Jesus. 
And Paul's courage and commitment is not something that Luke tells us for the first time about one of the apostles. We might remember that uh, um, Peter and John, uh, when they were beaten by the members of the Sanhedrin, Acts 5 tells us that they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer a dishonor for the name. And I think Paul is ready to undergo suffering and death because he, he sees it as a as a, as a necessary part of being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. In some ways, Paul, in this text in particular, is showing us how he lives out the things that he is, he's told the churches that he has written to. And in this case, it seems to me, he's, he's picking up on what he told the church at Philippi. Uh, let me just read to you from, uh, from uh, Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now, Paul wrote to the church at Philippi and told them that, but here he is uh, talking to these people at Caesarea, and he says, this is real. I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm willing to die uh, for the name, for the sake of the Lord Jesus. So, so this is what Paul says, and we can... We can uh, admire Paul's uh, faith and we can admire Paul's courage, but I don't think we should really be surprised by it as we know what the Apostle Paul is like. Uh, Paul himself gives us a, a basis for his willingness to die. Go back again to uh, Philippians chapter 1. Let me just read to you sections there beginning at verse 20. He says, And it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is better. Paul's able to make this statement to these believers at Caesarea because uh, the Spirit of God is at work in Paul, something that we see over and over again uh, uh, unfolding for us in the book of Acts. And uh, you will recall that when Jesus promised to send the Spirit, back at the beginning of the book of Acts, uh, he promised that when the Holy Spirit come, he comes, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And I think for most of us, that's been sort of... Uh, uh, isolated around the idea of witness. But the Holy Spirit does bring power, and from that power working in people, living out the things that they're committed to, living out a life uh, to honor the name of the Lord Jesus is what the Apostle Paul did, and I think he does that by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works in him, and so he's ready and willing to go to um, Jerusalem, and he's ready and willing to, to uh, suffer and die, as he says there. And, and we know Paul's words aren't hollow. I mean, as, we, as I read the rest of the text to you, you know what happens to him when he gets uh, to, uh, to, to, uh, to Jerusalem after being in Caesarea. He's imprisoned, we know that, and we also know that uh, he is uh, attempted murder of him while he's there in Jerusalem, and we know finally the end of Paul's life, and that he does suffer martyrdom. And, and as we think about the Apostle Paul in this situation, I, I, I feel constrained to point out uh, that Paul's statement in, in, in Philippians chapter 1 um, is... is not just about Paul. Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, and he's saying to those people at Philippi, those of you who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ know that a part of what it means to be a part of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ is that you also have to come to suffer for his sake. My fear is that 
for most of us, that's a fairly abstract notion. Uh, maybe we know what it's like to be, what well, we say, inconvenienced uh, for the sake of the gospel, but we don't really understand what it means to suffer. And perhaps that says a lot about the weakness of, of the contemporary church. But my point is that the Apostle Paul is ready to go to Jerusalem. He's ready to die there. That's something there. And he's ready to die there because he knows the end of his life. He knows it's better for him to what? To die and to be with Christ than it is for him to live. And so there's a sense in which the Apostle Paul can go to Jerusalem and actually, he doesn't do this, but he could actually say to them, what's the worst thing that you could do to me? The worst thing they could do to me, Paul could say, is to put me to death. And what could Paul's response to be? Good. I prefer that. That's, that's the Apostle Paul. And that's, that's a part of why Christians can suffer. That's why a part of why Christians who believe, they, they have a genuine, real, almost tangible sense of what death is. Death for Christians certainly is a part of the curse, certainly is a part of the judgment of God. But death for Christians is also the entryway into the presence of the Jesus who died for us and took away our sins. And that's the reason why, brothers and sisters, we may not have to suffer in this country, but we at least can endure some inconvenience. So we see Agabus and what he brings of these people who meet the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul then, uh, Luke then tells us about Paul as he comes to, from Caesarea to Jerusalem, that he meets with uh, James and the elders there. Caesarea to Jerusalem is probably around 65 miles. Uh, uh, my take is, uh, many commentators also say, Paul probably went there by horseback, so it wasn't a long time to get there. Uh, when they get ready to depart, the language that's in the text uh, could also mean they got ready to get on their horses, so that's, that's part of what it is. Paul arrives in Jerusalem, and the day after he gets there, he meets with James and the other elders. And my take is that this meeting with James and the other elders in Jerusalem is not some casual meeting. It strikes me that this is probably some kind of an official meeting uh, where the elders are gathered together. And Paul, one of the things that uh, Paul does is to give a report. He greets the elders and then he gives a report. And he talks about the way in which the Lord has blessed him in his ministries, the different things that, that have happened. And my take is that probably what the Apostle Paul rehearses for them are many of the things that we can read about for in, in, in Acts beginning at chapter 13 and on to where we are now. These are the kind of ways in which the Lord has used the uh, Apostle Paul in his ministry. And so this is the report that comes uh, to the elders there. And the response of the elders at, uh, at Jerusalem is, is that they're, they're, they rejoice in this. They glorify God, is what the text tells us. It happens as a result of the elders. And the elders were, were impressed with the manner in which God blessed his, the efforts of the Apostle Paul, in particular to take the gospel to the Gentiles. That was something that was important to them. My suspicion is, though, if I, if I could kind of imagine these elders as they're they're sitting there hearing all the things that, that the Apostle Paul is telling them as they listen to these dramatic actions of God in converting the heathen to the Christian faith. They were, they were at the same time, no doubt, reminded about the problems that they had in Jerusalem. 
And those problems were no doubt about to get more complicated because a part of the problems that they had in Jerusalem was how to handle the Christian faith being taken up by Gentiles. And a part of, what it, part of the problem was that here was this guy, the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle had been accused of denigrating the law, of, of telling people that they did not have to circumcise their children, of telling people that they did not have to obey the law. Now, these are Jews who were serious about their Judaism, and they wanted to try to integrate their Judaism and their Christianity. It's hard for us to step back into that, but in all probability at that time, people didn't make a big dis distinction between Christians and Jews. It's pretty clear that the Romans, for example, the civil rulers thought of Christianity as a part of Judaism. It was just another group of Jews as far as the Romans were concerned. So, so, so Paul becomes a problem for the elders in, uh, when he comes to Jerusalem because there are all these statements about him. Now, no doubt, many of the statements about him, many of the things that were uh, told to the church at Jerusalem uh, came uh, from people who were opponents of the Apostle Paul. And, and Luke summarizes the charges uh, some uh, Jewish Christians were making against Paul. We see this in verse 21. They have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to our customs. And uh, the Jewish Christians at this time, things are in transition. It's hard for them. Uh, we can go back and say, well, didn't they know what Paul said in Romans? Didn't, didn't, don't they know what Paul said in Galatians? And the answer basically is they probably didn't. Uh, they didn't hear, have access to uh, the apostles' mature writing and thinking on these kind of subjects. The scriptures were in development, not uh, a finished thing for them. So there was a lot of difficulty of transitioning uh, from their Judaism to their uh, uh, Christianity. And so the elders give Paul some, some directions. Uh, they rejoiced in his report about his ministry, but at the same time, they realized that his presence in Jerusalem would add to the problems that they face. And uh, uh, they advise Paul to demonstrate, as they say, that you yourself also live in observance of the law. Then they give Paul some specific advice. They tell him that there are four fellows who are taking on a vow and that he is to participate in a ritual kind of purification. And Paul is directed to pay the, uh, the, the expenses incurred by these four men, probably the expenses that would be entailed by certain sacrifices that, that they, were, they, they had to make. And we can't be sure all that was involved in this process. Uh, a vast number of commentators argue that that what these men were involved with is a Nazarite, uh, Nazarite vows. That was what they were supposed to be doing. We can find out about the Nazarite vows back in Numbers chapter 6. Uh, mostly the reason they think of that is because we're told, Luke tells us this day they had to uh, shave their heads, and that was an important part of the Nazarite vow. Uh, I have serious reservations about whether this is a Nazarite vow because... I don't know how Paul could have done this. I know that it takes longer than six days or five days because it was less than a week that he went back into the temple. So there are some problems there. So we don't know exactly what the, uh, 
rituals were, but clearly the rituals were of such a character. And what it was that what Paul was doing is that when the, when the Jewish Christians saw it being done, uh, that they would no longer make the, the assumptions about Paul that, that they, they, would, they had been. Uh, what the leaders of the church in Jerusalem desired was for Paul to demonstrate to his accusers that thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself live in observance of the law. Now, as we look at this text, one of the things that strikes me, at least, first of all, Paul shows no hesitancy whatsoever about doing this. I mean, the next day, he takes up uh, uh, with these four fellas, and he begins the process of uh, purification. Uh, and uh, we have no record of any interaction or questioning by, by Paul of the uh, directions that the elders give him. And without hesitation or reservation, he begins to carry out this Jewish uh, ritual, whatever it was. If it was a Nazarite vow, uh, then it had a lot of things involved with it. Now, some of you, if you're like I am, you, you, you question why is Paul doing this? <laughs> is this consistent for the Apostle Paul and the things that we know that the Apostle Paul has taught? Is this, uh, is this what's going on? And uh, I don't think that there could be any doubt that Paul, the author of Galatians, uh, for example, would not have seen these rituals as binding on him. I don't think Paul would have said, these I have to do. That's not what we see going on here. And then if that's the case, if it's not binding on it, then why does he do it? And I take this as an excellent example of the way in which the Apostle Paul puts into practice the things that he tries to teach the church in Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14 is, a, is, a, is about what we call Christian liberty, and in particular about those things that are indifferent. They aren't good or bad necessarily, but they're indifferent kind of things. And the Apostle Paul there is very clear uh, that, that it's not necessary for those that he calls the strong to do the things that uh, the weak require of them, but they do the things that the weak ask them to for the sake of the weak. That's, that's because they're all a part of the body of Christ. And it strikes me that what the Apostle Paul is doing in this, uh, what we see in this text, is that that's what he's doing is he engages in this purification ritual. It's not necessary for him to do so, but because the Jews, uh, Jewish Christians, uh, are, are bothered by some of the things that they have heard about the Apostle Paul, he wants to demonstrate to them that he has a, a connection, a very definite uh, relationship uh, with them. And so the Apostle Paul does this. Now, in the text, it's very clear that the elders know that this is only something that he's doing so that he can get along with the Jewish Christians there because they actually, uh, quote, Luke actually quotes uh, what they had said back in chapter 15 about the Gentiles, that the Gentiles basically are to keep away from idolatry and they're to keep away from certain kinds of uh, blood sacrifices that were characteristic of Gentiles and that they're to not engage in sexual immorality. You go back to Acts 15, that's exactly what the letter they wrote to the church has said. So, so Paul is, is doing these things to adapt. And I think we see two things here. One is, we see Paul's genuine affection and love for the brothers and sisters in the Christian church. And I think that has to be one of the characteristics that we pick up when we think about Christian liberty. 
Uh, oftentimes, I think in the OPC, we get carried away with our understanding of Christian liberty, and we want to celebrate our liberty over against everything else. And it becomes very easy for us sometimes to forget that Paul's burden is to care for the weak. And it seems to me in this text, we find Paul doing that. But I think there's another thing that we see going on with the Apostle Paul that's consistent with his teaching where he puts into practice that which he has preached, for example. And that is Paul's respect for the leadership of the church. Now, Paul is very clear when he comes to the, to, uh, the pastoral epistles about explaining how people ought to relate in the church and how leaders ought to behave in the church. And Paul shows that. The leaders come to the Apostle Paul and said, you coming here creates a problem for us. Because people have believed things, some of them not true about you. You have created a problem for us. And we would like for you to do certain things to alleviate that problem. And what does Paul do? He says, you're my brothers. You're leaders in the church of Jesus Christ. I'm going to do what you suggest to me to do for the benefit of those who are weak, but also for the benefit of the church in Jerusalem. And again, I think Paul's behavior here, Paul's attitudes here, are worthy of our reflection and also worthy of our imitation, of our having such a commitment to the way in which the church of Jesus Christ functions, the way in which he has established it, that we aren't always so interested in what I can do or if we're typical Americans, what I have a right to do. But what we say to one another is, we listen to the, to the uh, leadership of the church, we pay attention to what they have to say to us, and we engage in certain things because this is good for our brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it seems to me that as we look at the Apostle Paul, as he meets these Jewish Christians, that, that there are certain things that we can learn from him in the way in which we actually see him putting into practice things that he has written. Now, there is a last group that Paul also finds, meets in this, back when he gets back to Jerusalem, and that is, uh, as he's engaged in this ritual of purification, he's accused of bringing Gentiles into the sacred place, into the main court of the, of the inner court of the, of the temple. And Gentiles were forbidden to enter into the inner courts. They were allowed to come on the outside of the temple in a place called the court of the Gentiles, but they couldn't go even into the court of the women. They had to stay out and they were subject to uh, uh, death at this time. And the charge of desecrating the temple is brought by some Jews from Asia. Um, the, the language Asia probably indicates that they were also at some time or other in Ephesus. And they accuse Paul of bringing Trophimus, a man from Ephesus, into the temple. Now Luke shows us that the charge against Paul is to be fallacious because they said it appeared to them. They didn't see him do this. They just thought that he had done it. He wasn't there with him when they made this accusation against him. Trophimus, uh, didn't, they didn't see Trophimus in the temple with Paul. That's very clear. And the conclusion wants us to, what Luke wants us to draw is that the entire ruckus that follows is based on a falsehood. They make a false accusation against the Apostle Paul, and as a result of that false accusation, a bunch of people try to murder Paul. I think that's what we have to see Luke is presenting to us here. And the Jews jump to the conclusion that Paul is guilty of the charge brought against him, and as a result, first of all, they drive Paul out of the out of the inner courts of the temple, and they immediately close the gates on the temple. And they attack him uh, with the intent to kill him. Now, now just for a minute, catch the, 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 the craziness of all of this. 
Here are the Jews screaming and hollering against Paul on the basis of a false accusation, and they're about to put Paul to death. They're about to, to kill him. And these are people who are what? Protecting the temple, protecting the character, protecting the integrity of Judaism. Yet, these are also the same people who know that Deuteronomy tells us you can't put anybody to death except with two or three witnesses. This is just a mob going wild. And they're attempting to put the Apostle Paul to death. He's, he's innocent in all of this. Now, now, the strangeness of this comes out even more fully. While the Jews, who are supposed to respect certain laws about not putting anybody to death except by two or three witnesses, uh, they're trying to kill Paul. And who comes to Paul's rescue? The vile Romans. I mean, you know, the world is turned upside down in this, this, this passage because here is Paul being attacked by Jews who are supposed to be uh, committed to law, and here come the Romans who the Jews uh, look at as unclean uh, kinds of people, and the Romans come to, to rescue the Apostle Paul. And they, as a matter of fact, they do rescue him. Now, you may wonder how it is that the uh, uh, soldiers got there so quickly. Well, it's altogether likely that these soldiers were stationed in a, in a fortress that was just a little bit higher than the, than the temple, and there were actually steps that came down. And the Romans were, were, were stationed there because there was a lot of difficulty, is the best way to put it. There was uproar going on, particularly around the time of holy days. Remember, Paul wanted to get there by Pentecost, so this is a time when lots of people come in. So the Romans probably had a thousand soldiers or something like that in this fortress Antonio up there, and all they had to do was come down the steps. But the point is, whoever is on duty up there looks out, looks down into the temple, and he hears and sees exactly what's going on. And they hear and see what's going on, and the, and the uh, uh, Roman soldiers uh, come rushing down, and they rescue the Apostle Paul. And uh, uh, Luke confirms for us that the Jews who attacked Paul had no basis for doing so. Uh, look at the way in which Luke describes the response of the Jews to the tribune, that is the leader of the Roman army people, to his query about what Paul did. And Luke tells us, some of the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. There was, there was nobody who knew what was going on, only that they wanted to get rid of the apostle Paul. Now, as we, as we look at this passage, I think we see what I would argue are three types of Jews in this passage. I don't know if you're struck as I am at the contrast that we see among them. Uh, first, there are the Christians. James says there are thousands of them, as a matter of fact. And these Jews are concerned to integrate their Judaism into their Christianity. Uh, there are Jews in the temple who attacked an innocent man, and they're concerned to eliminate Paul, and they're willing to believe false accusations, and they're driven by hate for, uh, for Paul, but in particular for what it was that Paul taught. And the third Jewish group, or the third Jew that we see there, is the Apostle Paul himself. He's a Jew, and at one time he was a notorious, for what? As for persecuting the church, for trying to put Christians to death, to turn them away from their Christianity. Now, he's famous, if you will, amongst the Jews for being the great propagator of the Christian faith. And I think we can understand the 
contrasting views among the Jews. And some of you may be able to understand this contrast at this period of time, this, this time in our own calendar uh, in uh, particular, as, as we think about how do we celebrate Christmas. As we think about how we celebrate Christmas, some of you, I hope all of you, want to make sure that Christ is at the center of your Christmas. And you find great encouragement because there are other Christians, uh, people who are sympathetic with you, who also want to make sure that in your Christmas, but in all of your life, Jesus Christ is the center of all that you do. And so you find uh, coming here, being with Christian people, um, you know, singing uh, Christmas carols, for example, things that remind us about the centrality of the Lord Jesus. Uh, this is an encouragement to you. So, so you, you feel that kind of thing. But you also know that there are other pressures on you at this time, and those pressures on you have to do with things that are indifferent. They're not right or wrong at all. There are lots of things that we do at Christmas that have little or nothing to do with the Christian faith. And we know about that. They're, they're just indifferent things. But, but if, you're, if you're like lots of other Christians, you're nervous about those kind of things because you know how easy it is to lose hold on making Jesus as the center of your Christmas and allow all these indifferent things to come and to overwhelm your kind of Christmas. And so you're sort of like those, those, uh, those Jews, if you will, who were fearful that they were going to lose something. And I think we can understand that. But we live in a context like those Jews that were opposed to the Apostle Paul and tried to kill him, where people look at Christmas and they despise the idea that Jesus would be the center of Christmas. And they come to us as civil authorities. And they say, you be careful. You can't do certain things about Christmas and make Jesus the center of it. It's against the law, you see. And there are commercial people who say, forget that Jesus stuff. Forget that stuff about sacrifice. Forget that stuff about giving up for other people and all of those things. They want you to spend money. And they're opposed to it. And there are all sorts of cultural institutions like this that force us away. And so as we, as we approach the Christmas season, we find those tensions that Luke is portraying for us in this text. Those who want to be clearly faithful want to follow. Those who can be very uh, confused and torn by those things that in themselves are indifferent. And we live in the midst of a context of those who are, are clearly opposed. And the Apostle Paul in this text is shown to us as walking that very narrow line of keeping all these things in balance somehow. And he's to be admired for this. And we may ask ourselves the question, how is it that the apostle was able to do this? And my answer to that is, is something that has characterized Luke's writing about all of these things, that the Spirit of God was at work in Paul. He was at work in Paul. He was enabling him to keep that balance, to be able to, uh, to say to Agabus and to his friends who had traveled with us, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm willing to suffer there. In fact, for the sake of Jesus Christ, I'm willing to die there. He was able to say to the church, I'm willing to deal with these indifferent things for the sake of the body of Christ and for my brothers and sisters who are Jewish but are also Christian. And he was able to stand over against, and we'll see next week, uh, how he stood over against uh, those others. So we, we see, and he did this because the power of the Holy Spirit. Now I say that, and you all sit there and say, preachers always say it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can do these things, but that's the Holy Spirit really going to work in me? <laughs> uh, am I going to be able to say this? I, I, I just have my doubts about whether the Holy Spirit works in me. 
Let me tell you a few things. Why is the Holy Spirit here? The Holy Spirit came. That's one of the things Luke makes very clear in the book of Acts, that this Holy Spirit came because the Lord Jesus Christ sent him to his church. This is the Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas time. This is the Jesus, the King of heaven and earth, who came to earth, the Holy Son of God, divine in all, and he is the one who came and became a babe at Bethlehem. Because of why? Philippe told us this morning. Because of God's love for us. This is the Jesus because he loved us, lived upon this earth, and he went to the cross and he died there. And why did he do that? Because he loved us. And this is the Jesus who was raised on high and he sits at the right hand to God with all power and might and authority. This is that Jesus. And Jesus sent the Holy Spirit into his church and he sent him to exercise his power. And so you ask the question, can I live at Christmas time and throughout the rest of the time confident that the Holy Spirit works in me? And I say to you, if you believe that Jesus did for you what he says he did for you, and you believe that Jesus sent his spirit for your good, and you ask me, can I trust the Holy Spirit to work in my life? And the Bible's answer is, of course you can. Only a fool would doubt that a good Jesus would send a spirit with no power. Of course you can. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you send your spirit to work in our hearts and lives. And we pray, O oh Lord God in heaven, that we will trust and depend upon you to guide us, to empower us, and to honor you and to witness to your faithfulness to us by making us faithful to you. And we pray, O oh Lord, that we might emulate in some ways what we learn about the Apostle Paul in this passage. And we make our prayer to you in Jesus' name. Amen.